Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for joining The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. The Islamic State and Al-Qaeda tend to attract most of the attention when it comes to extremism and terrorism. But the trends in the U.S. and Europe indicate that a bigger threat is coming from right-wing groups. According to the Global Terrorism Database at the University of Maryland, the share of attacks by right-wing extremists rose from 6% in the 2000s to 35% in the 2010s. Joining the crisis next door to talk about this shift is Colin Clark, senior research fellow at the Sufan Center and author of After the Caliphate, The Islamic State and the Future Terrorist Diaspora, which is available for pre-order on Amazon and will be released in June. Colin, thanks for coming back on The Crisis Next Door. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Right-wing extremism. These numbers are uh, incredible to see such a large jump in the percentage of attacks worldwide by right-wing extremists. First off, let's kind of get into that. What is germinating these seeds that are causing more right-wing extremist attacks around the world? Yeah, well, I think this is an issue that's been festering for quite some time. I mean, uh, you, if you go back to the, the 90s when you had the Oklahoma City bombing, Timothy McVeigh and the kind of, uh, you know, fervor around the right-wing militias, uh, McVeigh was um, agitated by a lot of what he saw as government overreach. And if you think about things like Waco uh, and, and then Ruby Ridge after that, there's this kind of ideology that permeates among these groups, uh, including kind of the modern-day sovereign citizens, that uh, the government's out to take their guns uh, and that these individuals, uh, you know, should not be beholden to regular laws that other Americans are, like paying taxes. So they're very anti-government in their outlook, uh, and they're willing to use violence uh, to defend themselves and to go on the offensive. So, you know, to me, the, the core most... Uh, fundamental definition of terrorism is political violence, and, and that's what that is. So right-wing terrorism has been with us for quite some time. I think uh, given the high-profile uh, nature of 9-11, we were so focused on any kind of uh, terrorism related to jihadist terrorism for so long that we probably overlooked a lot of the things that were happening right under our noses. Is that part of the reason why we've seen this uptick in the trend of right-wing extremist groups that we simply weren't paying attention to them, so they've been able to operate and make their moves without that kind of oversight? No question. I think there's a lot of factors. One, I think it's the fact that, you know, law enforcement has been distracted uh, and, and looking almost exclusively at the threat from jihadist terrorism. I think another thing we saw was that after the election of President Barack Obama, the first black president, a lot of these groups really started uh, becoming, uh, you know, more active online, right? So even if they're not actually doing things, they're certainly saying a lot more. Uh, and they feel like there's this grievance out there that, oh, my God, how could a black man ever rise to the highest office in the land? And then, frankly, you know, the, the election of Donald Trump has, you know, a, a lot of people say that he's kind of blown a dog whistle to some of these groups, failing to disavow, uh, you know, the attack in Charlottesville. Uh, Daniel Byman had a great piece in Slate 
just this week. Uh, it's called Trump's Rhetoric is Raising the Risk of Right-Wing Terrorism. So I, I would urge a lot of people, listeners, to go out and, and read that because it talks through some of those things. How critical is it for the president to say the right words when it comes to disavowing attacks from any group, in particular right-wing extremists? It's absolutely critical because words have meaning and words matter, especially when you have the biggest megaphone in the world, frankly. You are the, you're sitting in the office of the most powerful man in the world. Uh, and so when these events happen, you know, it doesn't matter what the ideology is. The president needs to come out and condemn political violence in all forms and facets, whether it's left wing, right wing, jihadist terrorism, eco-terrorism. It doesn't matter. Political violence should not be accepted. It should not be given even an iota of breathing space. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think he's perhaps finally coming around to this. But uh, certainly we've seen groups with a right wing agenda feel more emboldened, uh, especially in the virtual space. Um, and there's been a number of high-profile attacks over the past several years. I mean, if you go back to the Dylan Roof massacre uh, in, in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, and then more recently in the city where I live, in the neighborhood that I've lived for the past 10 years in Pittsburgh, in Squirrel Hill, where we had the Robert Bowers shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue. And there's, there's plenty of others that we could talk about as well. Most of these right-wing terrorist attacks seem to involve the so-called lone wolf, a very different story than the organized groups that we see in the Middle East with the Islamic State and al-Qaeda. Yeah, the organizational structure is definitely interesting because as an ideology, there's all these different permutations of, of right-wing. I mean, that's admittedly a big basket, right? That could be, you know, uh, that could be white nationalists, that could be neo-Nazis, that could be skinheads, that could be KKK, uh, you know, sovereign citizens. Who falls into that right-wing bucket? Um, and again, are they part of an actual organization? Or, you know, as Robert Bowers, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooter, are they part of this kind of virtual community where they think they're part of, you know, something larger than they actually are, even if they are a kind of lone actor? Um, and if you look at, you know, Bowers' language that he used, he thought he was defending this community of saying, that's it, I can't take anymore. I'm going in. I'm not going to let this happen to my people. So there's very much an in-group, out-group dynamic going on, an us versus them narrative that exists here. Um, but you're right. I think a lot of these people are lone actors. They're socially isolated. They pick up on these grievances that are then parroted uh, online. Um, and, and, you know, and it becomes a world onto itself. So it's a very scary thing. And I think you know, while, while I think the Internet has often afforded too much of a role in, in so-called radicalization, right, where we think like, oh, you know, person comes along, uses the Internet, becomes, quote unquote, radicalized, commits acts of terrorism. It's, it's not nearly that simple. Right. And there's almost always some kind of an online aspect or sorry, an in-person aspect to, quote unquote, radicalization. Um, and also, I, I, I would just like to say there seems to be a double standard that when there's a right wing act of terror, as in the case of Bowers, we very rarely will say, well, I wonder how he became radicalized. Where if it's somebody that's committing an act uh, of jihadist terrorism, we almost always use radicalization, right? How did this person become radicalized? But why don't we say that when it's someone that's committing um, an act of murder uh, that's, that's motivated by anti-Semitism? That's interesting. Is that an inherent bias that we have in that we don't consider why a right-wing extremist has been radicalized compared to someone who might have more uh, Muslim fundamentalist beliefs? I don't know. I mean, you know, so I've been admittedly myself almost focused exclusively on jihadist terrorism and have only in the last, 
year or two started looking more at the right-wing side of the House. And so it's something that I plan to explore in my own research. Um, what I would say is I think in general, and this is kind of a, a, a broader generalization, um, I think, you know, when when a right-wing terrorist tends to commit an act of terror, it's someone that looks like more, Amer- you know, the, the average American, right? And so you're maybe it takes you a little bit longer to disavow that, or there's some kind of you know, cognitive dissonance of like, well, this person is like me in some ways, or he's from a community, or he looks like he could be my uncle, right? And so there's somewhat of a maybe a reticence to go out and, and use that same language. Whereas because of 9-11, because of the, you know, Al-Qaeda, and because of the Islamic State, uh, they're, they're very much treated differently and, and viewed differently. But to me, an act of terror is an act of terror. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the rise in right-wing terrorism with Colin Clark, senior research fellow at the Sufan Center and author of After the Caliphate, The Islamic State and the Future Terrorist Diaspora. You mentioned online perhaps getting too much credit in helping radicalize extremists of any kind. We have seen the Islamic State lean rather heavily on social media to recruit and push forward its agenda. How is online and social media used when it comes to right-wing extremism? How how critical of a role does it really play? No, I think it's, it plays a huge role. I think all of, you know, I just, I just don't want to draw a one-to-one, you know, causality of saying, like, you know, if you use the internet, you're susceptible to radicalization. I think there's a basket of factors. I think the research is still in its nascent stages. There's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there that will tell you that they have the cure for radicalization or countering violent extremism, when in reality, there's only a handful of scholars, guys like John Horgan, that have been doing this for a long time and whose research that I would actually trust. So that, that would be my caution. But I think, you know, there's a lot of oxygen in the online space for right-wing groups, right? And they're covered, at least in this country, under freedom of speech. And we're seeing it not only here, but we're seeing it rear its ugly head in Europe once again. And this is a, a you know a continent that has dealt with right-wing fascism, totalitarian ideology uh, that's had very real consequences uh, in countries like Germany, Italy, Spain, and elsewhere. We're now seeing a, a kind of revival uh, in, in countries including Germany, but also in other parts of uh Uh, Eastern Europe. Yeah, interesting to see the rise in right-wing extremism across Europe as well. UK in particular had uh, many more uh, potential attacks that were foiled than any other country in Europe. Are the factors the same for white-wing extremists in Europe as they are for the U.S., or are there differences? Yeah, so I think, you know, Europe's got a tougher road ahead just because there's still a very, uh, you know, if you look at um, some of the data, uh, in 2017, Europe suffered from the highest number of terrorist attacks linked to jihadist ideology in modern history. Um, that said, they've also had a, a resurgence of right-wing terrorism. So I think they're getting it from both sides. And I think both those sides play into each other, right? So anytime that there is a jihadist attack, I think it gives fuel to the right-wing to say, look, right, it feeds into this Islamophobia. Um, and it's not only the people that are willing to commit the acts of violence, it's the population that's willing to potentially look the other way, right? Because it's, well, you know, um, these are people that are my neighbors. They look like me and they're defending, quote unquote, Western civilization or whatever the twisted ideology uh, that goes into kind of providing justifications for for any kind of violence are. So I think Europe's got a tougher road ahead, um, especially in terms of, you know, when you think about the caliphate, um, which which is crumbling at the moment, just based on sheer 
facts of demography and geography, um, Europe's in for a bit more of a rough ride. Here, we're, we're spared. You know, we're surrounded on both sides by oceans. It's a lot more difficult to infiltrate the United States from elsewhere. But again, there is the threat of homegrown extremism right on American soil. We, we've seen that um, from, from both jihadist terrorism and, and right-wing terrorism. Although, if you look at the data, in the U.S., 2018 saw just one death uh, linked to jihadi terrorism, uh, whereas right-wing terrorists killed 15 Americans that same year. And that brings to mind it, the rise in right-wing terrorism. Does this present an opportunity for the Islamic State or al-Qaeda or other Islamic groups if the U.S. and Europe now have to divert more resources and attention to fighting the right-wing extremists? Oh, without question. You know, you know, when you look at resources allocated for counterterrorism, it's very much a zero-sum game, right? So whatever resources you take uh, to apply to one threat, you have fewer for the other. Think about a country like France, uh, where there's 20,000 people alone on their so-called S-list. These are individuals allegedly vulnerable to the risk of radicalization. Although there, I'd be curious to ask questions of, well, what separates person number five on that list from person number 18,838? How do you rank order these people, right? Is there some kind of algorithm that goes into it? I'd be really fascinated to know more of the details there. Um, and, and so how do you, again, prioritize who you're monitoring and surveilling, given you can only really look after a very, very small fraction of those 20,000 people? Um, and I think, yeah, so I think, you know, especially in this country where, at least from a military perspective, we're really sh shifting away from um, counterterrorism and we're looking more toward the threat posed by a rising China um, and a revengeous Russia. Uh, and so, the, you know, the, the focus is less on al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Does that give those groups kind of more room to maneuver? Um, you know, we're now getting ready to withdraw from Syria. So how does that affect uh, these groups' ability to conduct spectacular attacks in the West? Uh, I guess we'll find out. You mentioned Russia. How much of a role has Russia perhaps played in stoking some of these fears in the U.S. and maybe in Europe on social media in order to fuel these right-wing extremist groups? Yeah, I think the Russian troll factory is, is alive and well uh, and thriving. In fact, the Russians really, you know, when you look at the amount of money and effort that went into 2016 election meddling, it's really a pittance compared to the amount of money that nations spend on kinetic warfare, tanks, bombs, guns, things that go boom. And they found the return on investment to be incredible, um, to, to have the impact and influence that they were able to have by sowing disinformation, by, you know, dividing Americans, um, and by, you know, causing these kind of existential questions to come up and be serious, seriously debated. Things like, is NATO obsolete? I mean, they live for this stuff. And so um, they definitely exacerbate uh, these divisions, um, and they've been quite effective in doing so. And I would worry not only about the Russians doing this again in the future, which they obviously will, but other kind of uh, adversaries of the United States and the West emulating these practices, learning from what the Russians have done. So what do the Chinese learn from this? What do the Iranians do, the North Koreans? How do they kind of tweak disinformation and tailor it to suit their own needs? Um, I think this is part and parcel of the future of warfare. It almost seems easier in some respects to fight an Islamic state where you could target the group down below with Air Force bombs as opposed to these right-wing lone wolves. 
What does the government have to do to fight that? How big of a challenge is it? And how critical is it that they have private business helping them in regards to at least fighting this on social media? Yeah, I think the public-private partnerships are, are absolutely crucial. I mean, we saw this with um, – I, I did a lot of work on countering the financing of terrorism, right? And so it was enlisting the help of the you know, financial sector, the private sector, big banks um, to work with the government to figure out, okay, what's the issue? How do we mitigate it? Um, how do we share data effectively, right? And there's always that element of trust there. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot of these same issues now with the government approaching Silicon Valley and these big tech companies are saying, you know, and, and think Silicon Valley is um, an industry more generally that tends to be a, a bit more skeptical of government intervention, is very protective of privacy. Um, and look, at the end of the day, let's not kid ourselves, is concerned with the bottom line and making money for shareholders. So there's that element, too. Um, and I, so I think. Um, content takedown, like we're still in the very, very early stages of figuring out best practices and lessons learned for this. Um, I think for every step forward, there's probably been two steps back. That doesn't mean we won't get there, uh, but it does mean that potentially by the time we do figure it out, you know, all of these issues have will have moved on to another platform or technology, right? So you think about some of the advances in artificial intelligence um, and uh, virtual reality and where those things are going. By the time we get it together, it may be too late. In fact, that's usually the case with terrorists and technology. They're typically two or three steps ahead of the government, which tends to be a bit more cumbersome, bureaucratic, um, and, and constantly trying to devise laws, authorities, and policies to keep up terrorists that aren't constrained by these same facts. What do you think is going to happen in regards to this trend of right-wing extremism, whether in the U.S. or in Europe? Is this something we're going to see these numbers continue to increase for some time? Or do you think perhaps we're at almost at a stage where it it will plateau before it goes any further? No, I I see the numbers continuing to rise. Um, Absolutely. And I think, you know, one thing that I'm concerned about is uh, what happens when one of these populists loses an election um, and says, you know, maybe goes on social media and calls into question the validity of the election itself. Uh, is that a kind of wink, wink and a nod to that individual's supporters to engage in kind of low-level acts of violence, right? Um, is there some kind of pendulum swing back away from jihadist terrorism, uh, back toward right-wing terrorism that will be with us for the next five or ten years? Do we have to deal with both, right? So if you look at some of the uh, the waves of terrorism throughout modern history, they tend to cluster. And I think, you know, we may be getting into a place now where we're getting um, back into uh, a, a real, you know, steady, consistent, uh, regularly occurring right wing type of terrorist uh, incident. We've seen a rise in right wing populism influence elections around the world from Brazil to the Philippines. Will that rise in populism also give further rise to right-wing extremism? Yeah, it absolutely could. And again, I will go back to my kind of fundamental definition of terrorism. It's political violence. Uh, to, to, I think you know, our definition of terrorism has unfortunately been colored by 9-11, by the, you know, al-Qaeda, by the Islamic State, where that's what we think of when we think of terrorism. But acts of terrorism occur every day, right? It's, it's political violence happening in different parts around the world. And so uh, we shouldn't ascribe it just to a particular ideology or worldview, uh, but look at it for what it is, trying to detach ourselves from the emotion that goes into it. Different actors, same horrific results. Colin, thank you very much for taking the time to join us on The Crisis Next Door. Thanks so much, Jason. 
We've been joined by Colin Clark, Senior Research Fellow at the Sufan Center and author of After the Caliphate, The Islamic State and the Future Terrorist Diaspora. Thanks for joining The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.